Hello and welcome to the Mesem podcast. I'm Karen Culver, and today I have the pleasure to meet and talk to Dr. Fabian Kumala. We actually meet face to face, which is very unusual these days, but we are working in the studio at the CEU Vienna campus. Dr. Kumala studied medieval and modern history, musicology, and peace and security studies at Bonn, Haifa, and Hamburg. In 2018, he received his PhD with distinction at the University of Vienna, and from 2011 to 2019, he was a researcher in the interdisciplinary SFB, Visions of Community, Comparative Approaches to Ethnicity, Region and Empire in Christianity, Islam and Buddhism, 400 to 1600, at the University of Vienna. He published a monograph on Korchula, Communities in Venetian Dalmatia, 1420-1499. This was published by de Gruyter Oldenburg in 2021. In the same year, he also co-edited Practicing Communities in Urban and Rural Eurasia, 1000-1600, published by Brill, 2021, with J. Mayorashi and E. Hovden. Fabian is currently the Apart GSK Fellow at the Austrian Academy of Sciences and Principal Investigator of the Project on Pastoral Communities in Southeast Europe, 1400-1600. He also tells me he loves sailing, which is part of his reason for studying islands. He sails to them and round them. And when he's not doing that, he's playing the guitar, anything from big band and swing to heavy metal. So, Fabian, welcome to the Misen podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, your, your research, which you're doing at the moment, which is the pastoral communities in southeastern Europe, why did you select to research the herdsman's community and not other socio-professional communities? And why Cortula? Well, these are good questions, I guess. Um, the, I was not born but raised in a village and I grew up on the countryside and I have a certain, let's say, affection for topics that are understudied in a way and I perceive the rural world and the rural society, particularly in southeastern Europe in the Middle Ages, to belong to that group of understudied topics, particularly if it concerns really a focus on the people and not just, let's say, on economic history or on structural things. Among those studies that I did on rural society as such, um, herders always showed up and appeared, and it was difficult to grasp them since they are also quite a mobile part of the population, even though they were also sedentary. But that was something that really struck me, and so I decided to really focus on herdsmen and herding communities, um, also female herders. It just caught my attention. And um, with my PhD, I was working on Cortula for the very same reason that I've integrated the island now into my project, um, because we have a very, very rich source situation um, with source material that is usually lost in other places. Source material that gives really detailed insights um, into the rural sphere, the social life, the conflicts, problems, and also the economic um, organization that goes to such a degree of detail that, for example, we even have reports of rural guards that 
daily or on a weekly basis recorded literally how many sheep ate, how many grapes in what kind of field. Getting down to details like this uh, is very appealing to study. And so I focused on sheep, goats and herding communities. Where is all this amazing material? So we have, like, to remain on Cortula, we have an, an island um, that in its structuring, in its um, legal and, and administrative organization belongs to the, to the world of Adriatic communities. So that is a communal way in which the society is organized and also all parts belonging to that society. So it was a communal clerks, communal officers and guards that draw up this pile of archival material and it was kept on the island until Cortula became Austrian and then it was transferred to the capital of the province which was uh, Zadar and there it stayed until today. It is occasionally been touched over the last two centuries. Before me there was my, my supervisor Oliver Jens Schmidt and then there were two Croatian scholars that also wrote a monograph on parts of the island's history. Apart from that, research somehow omitted the island. It, it, it left unseen or it, was in the, it remained in the shades for, for quite some time. And, and then, of course, there is a bit of additional material also in Venice and in Dubrovnik, which is close by, and in Split there is archives. And on the island itself, there is also a branch of an archive, um, which also contains very interesting material, but really the major part... Um, and that's boxes over boxes. That's really ten thousands of folio pages. That one is in Zadar. That sounds like an absolute gold mine. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a quarry. <laughs> um, based on your research in the archives, you say that the contracts show the pastoralist business structure separated the livestock owners and the livestock management. Wealthy patricians owned livestock and herdsmen managed them under contract. Were the contracts based on a standard model? How long were the typical herding contracts? How did the herdsmen get paid? How were the contracts enforced? Well, thank you for this wonderful question. Well, um... There was organizational separation there between people owning herds and people managing the herds. It's rarely the occasion that people who owned herds managed their own animals together, let's say, with contracted herds. Um, the contracts offer a great variety, except for the fact that they are based on the model of, let's say, a herding society, so where people would meet under more or less on the same eye level in terms of a partnership association basically that is formed. All the rest is rather negotiable. So you might find herding contracts that last one year or more years, up to seven years usually. Part of the model, however, is that they have to include annual profit and loss accounts. And that has to take place on the assumption of St. Mary's so on August 15. That so far is the legal basis for these contracts. Um, when you take a look at the Dalmatian mainland, for example, the various places and cities, they have regulations how the herder is paid, how profits are distributed. So it, it could be that that the herder gets one-third of the profits, as this is in Trogir, or it could be two-fifths, as it is on the island of Park. 
than of profits being wool, cheese, um, and offspring produced. On Korchula, however, the remuneration of the herder and this mutual apportionment of profits is completely up for negotiation. And so it depends if people agree or not how that is handled. So the remuneration of the herder, again, is very versatile. You could find natural produce, so in-kind payment, basically. Somebody gets either food or wine. It could also be money. Although we mostly encounter wage, it has been argued that this was supposed to be a form of credit, which is not necessarily provable, but you also find it as clear credit agreements, but in, in, in rare cases, actually. And thirdly, you could also be paid by human support so that somebody would pay someone to assist you in herding. That is something then that gets pretty close to subcontracting agreements. But it could also be the case that you herd and, and let graze the animals of somebody and he instead pays a farmer to take care of your fields. Um, but we see this variation of the herding agreement, for example, now we can take a look at two agreements, like there would be a herder that agreed to paste the flock for five years, and he gets fixed amount of wine and millet, one goat and one sheep per year, and then for the other years he, he gets a variation of benefits um, depending on what he actually has negotiated for the remaining years. And, but then we also find, let's say, agreements that a herder agrees to pay 25 to 50 animals um, together with his own animals. So here we find an exception of the rule that it does not necessarily has to be a noble person who owns the animals. So he can herd that together, he can mix the animals, and the owner, for all the time he's herding, would cover his expenses, literally. Food, garment, pay him a salary and those things. So this is more or less the variation that we encounter in, in some examples. And then contracts are actually in, enforced, not necessarily in writing. And that is something that makes research a little complex. And they are first and foremost enforced by making a tally stick. So we would have a wooden object with notches that would then lengthwise be split. Um, and the herder and the owner, they would keep a part of that. And every time they meet for accounting, they have something to discuss, something to add to the contract or a conflict on, on something, both would have to meet with their tally stick and they could not go to court and see each other without the tally stick as proof, for example. So nobody could run around claiming, oh, that person over there is my herder and now he owns me 10 animals of whatever kind of animal. Um, and... Then yet again, we have also the more complex agreements in writing, pointing towards the fact that both herders and owners apparently expected a higher degree of legal certainty for conflict cases or litigations of any kind if they not only had the tally stick, which they would need anyway, but also documented additionally in writing. You mentioned that the contracts between the animal owners who were the wealthy people and the herdsmen indicated it was mutually beneficial because it was all based on contract and the contracts had to be agreed um, almost face to face, I would assume. Uh, and yet the two parties to the contract came from very different social classes. And you say at one point they were almost equal. 
do you know why the business was structured in this way? And perhaps even what were the social and maybe the political outcomes of the relative equality of these contracting partners? We might need to get a bit in context here as, of course, I do study the 15th century and that is some somewhat of a period where pastoralism and transhumans and herding businesses across the Mediterranean are really advancing a lot. So this is a period when in other parts of, of Italy, for example, full institutions are formed to handle pastoralism, herds, enabling transhumans across large distances. With that background, of course, we see clear-cut social hierarchies. I always hesitate some, somehow to speak of classes, but we definitely have a percentage of noble people in the society, and their nobility is connected to political rights. So these are the people that sit in the council, these are the people that you also find as judges, these are the people that vote on new laws. So that is the representatives and the, the, the people in power of the community as the, the group of islanders. Um, and then, of course, being, being wealthy or non-wealthy creates a certain dynamic and herders mostly being the, the non-wealthy part in these contracts. Of course, they were economically dependent on particularly the wealthy group, which also has a stronger political influence on what happens on the island. So there is some sort of dynamic at work here that could be interpreted in this top-down approach by having, let's say, the powerful classes um, abusing cheap labor work um, workers, basically. But then again, there is no feudalism on the island. Even the rural population is free. Um, and But these people get into business relations because it actually is profitable for, for all parties involved. We, we see also that this business model is, is growing in the 15th century. We know little, despite the very well-sourced situation, we know little about exports. But that what we can observe from, from the export lists and documents preserved is, is really a steep increase in exports of animal products, be it wool, be it cheese. So the island in, in, in the summer of 1497, just that island exports almost 30 tons of cheese. So that is cheese they don't eat, but they have produced somehow in between their four villages. So that's a good path to get wealthy, even if you're the non-noble partner. There, there are herders that tended herds of 400, 500 sheep and goats, obviously with assistance, but they have been the main contract partner for that. And if you think of, let's say, an average rate of how many sheep or goats would have been born and you get a third of this if you have a bad negotiation but you might get half of it if you negotiated well then that means you hurt animals for a few years and you're a rich man who is an animal owner for himself so if we take a look at that from let's say the, the herding partners in that contract they would meet on an eye level somehow at least of course, they would always lose in political powers, but you have to hurt us in court, in litigations. They sue their partners, no matter who it, they are. So, and, and they also win cases. 
and, and the judges then are nobles as well. So herders can enter court and win cases against fellow nobles of, of the judges. So these are things in a society which is really based, let's say, on, on, on their statutory law code and on also customary law um, and where law is paradigm. So how did people become herdsmen? Were they born herdsmen? Did they apply for a job with a CV, of course? Um, were they apprenticed? And you mentioned that herdsmen could become wealthy and animal owners themselves. Did this mean they could ever move socially or were they still peasants, but rich peasants? Well, I would say nobody was born a herder. From, from all that I can see in the documents, this is nothing you inherited. Of course, there is an increased probability that if your father was in the herding business, then the chances are high that you get apprenticed within your family structure. In a way, it's always a family business. Um, but it's more or less upon decision. So if you feel like or if you have the economic necessity, you would try to become a herder. You would try to find somebody that gives you his animals or her animals. And then whether you stay in the business or not is the question whether you have been apprenticed well or whether you behave well, whether you're a reliable, a trustable person. Then it's these things that matter. But you also find nobles herding animals for reasons that are not clearly identifiable. But this is not in the document why somebody enters the pastoral business. But what you see is that people have multiple multiple careers. Of course, nobody wrote a CV, right? But you would own a parcel of land here and maybe some sheep there. And and so there is a, some sort of dynamic. We, we also find people that work for decades in the herding business. And then like you have litigation records where people are really saying that, okay, I've, my father has done this, his father has done this, I do this, and I can now claim that I was herding for 25 years and I never had a problem and now I'm here and people sue me and that's like not comprehensible for me and 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 so then then we are we're entering the honor and reputation business um, it's not just people with sheep so there is there's so much more in in, in research on <laughs> on that yeah that is that is something and let's say chances to enter higher strata of society I'm cautious on that because wealth and nobility in terms of political influence not necessarily is connected. You know, you can easily, the poorest people in the village can be the nobles. Um, but of course, even though uh, the serata, so the council membership was closed, even though we find admissions to the council. So people from non-noble families would suddenly be raised in rank to a noble status. But... Um, I haven't seen a herder race to noble status. How do you tell the difference between the common man and the noble man? So, so the noble people, those from, those from families with council membership, they would have a, a certain addition to their name, like basically like the English sir. So almost literally they would be called sir. So... 
and and then the noble women then would would be a donna while nobody else would be no other woman on the island would be donna and you always have this as a sign of rank or respect in in the written documents as as part of their names you mentioned that one of the herdsmen you've been finding in the records had herds from a number of people and also subcontracted. Was this normal business practice? Um, did they ever form cooperatives or similar formalized business structures? Um, the the answer is a quite clear yes and no. So, <laughs> so um, it, it works in both ways. Um, so at first, a herder and an animal owner would form a contract. That would be an association. Um, but then again, this is not a. This is not. It's not like a herder can only have one contract. Um, if you get twenty-five animals from someone to herd, well, you might have a pretty boring day, and obviously you don't earn enough. So you say that okay, I'm out on the fields with twenty-five animals. I look for other animals to herd. So and and then they would have a different tally stick, does a different contract with somebody else, and let's say they get twenty five of person A, fifty animals of person B, and then another seventy from that guy in the other village, and and like that it continues, and that's how they reach herds of a size of let's say four to five hundred. There are people on the island that own. 600, 800, more than a thousand animals. And some of them give all their 400 animals that they own give to, to one herder. And then it gets this dynamic that this herder might be the personal herder and no, he cannot take other animals as well. But theoretically and in practice, herders do assemble animals from different owners. And then you might wonder, okay, I need a day off. I have my duties, let's say, on the watchtower. And then you need somebody else to take care of your animals. And that would be solved by subcontracting. You could also really be in a middle position. So you need the approval of the owning party in your contract to hire somebody. That intermediary position then would have a separate term on the, in the source material. That would be the aforementioned master herder, the challenge. Um, and that is somehow also connected to reputation. So you, you could be a herder, but also a businessman in the herding business. And then as a challenge, you would have like, yeah, you're not only the master herder of your subcontractors, but you would be more than just a herder. And, and people are proud of that. So they run around boosting that, oh, I've been a challenge since so many years. Um, and of course, also herders herders who would not perceive themselves as an animal owner but who owned animals could also use that contracting to group up with other herders and then jointly herd. So we would have cases of herder A and herder B. They, they went so far even in 1435, they went so far even to choose the same mark for their animals. So despite, let's say, social hierarchy, there is a lot of flexibility within that contract model and how it is is used in practice. It's clearly a very complex business model. And as you were talking, I was thinking, and every herdsman for every 
contract has to produce a profit and loss account at the end of every year. So they must have had accountants and lawyers and probably marketing executives. And <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the, the, and these accounting days, they are very well documented because, of course, people start to fight. Oh, and, really? And yes. Oh. Yes, yes. Because you would have greedy, needy, all sorts of bad characters would meet on on the pasters and, and they would fight each other no matter what contract. And they would also continue the contract afterwards. But everybody would try to keep or gain as much animals as possible. We have a contract, we rely on that. But on accounting day, I rip you off. And you <laughs> rip me off too. So there is some sort of some sort of interesting dynamic which enables us now to get a lot of insight um, in, in, in those practices. Um, then herders, they are afraid that they might lose animals that year, so they try to run away with the herds. Imagining a herder with 400 sheep trying to run away from his contract partner, is, it even has a ridiculous touch if you read the documents. It's like, how and where do you hide 400 sheep? I mean, you hear them. You see them, you smell them. Um, but, but still, these things happen. Um, and then it's important, again, to remember that it's an, an island community with its own administration. And they have um, guards and officers and everything in the rural area as well. And when they would start fighting on accounting day, they would call a guard. And then we have documents of really annoyed guards. Uh, yeah, but you're the contract partners. You should counting yourself. Yes, but I don't trust my herder. Well, then find another herder. Yes, but now we need to count to have our accounting. And, and, and then why don't you count yourself? Well, no, I'm too high class for that. I don't count. And, and then this poor guard ends up counting and he does not manage. Apparently, the sheep run around like crazy. And in that particular case, the guard needs to count three times. And at the end, he still is not sure whether it's 432 or 433 animals. And, and this is all documented. And that's what I also meant, where you really can grasp the life of those people. So it's, it's more than, let's say, business contracts or legal issues, but you really get down to how they behave. And that really gets uh, quite a vivid picture of what happened. Yes, um I could imagine to be a bar owner on accounting day would be um, a lively business. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you introduce this idea of disputes, and, and I really wanted to ask more about that. How were disputes solved? I mean, you've talked about going to the court and it strikes me that there must have been quite a conflict of interest for the nobles in the council and judges, potentially judging their fellow nobles. Did the jurisdiction of Venice make any major impact on the court cases? Um, to first answer on that, I need to dive a little deeper into how that administrative jurisdictional system was organized. So it was, of course, let's say the high class offices, I never encountered a single judge that was not noble. And sometimes you also really have a really respectable urban or rural offices that a non-noble would do on a regular basis. And it's the Grand Council elects these officers. And the election takes place every six months. 
So no matter who you will be, you will be in that position only for six months. And you cannot be re-elected in the same position right afterwards. And being or becoming a judge in a way, you would always need to remember that the person you might unlawfully convict for something could be the next judge. There is some sort of tangible, indirect dynamic that people would really sit on the law and take the law to punch somebody. But there is not so much uncontrolled, I don't know, that, that people would really abuse their position too much. And of course, people did. But then again, even the, the, the minor farmers on the island had the right to appeal in Venice. And the Venetian governor has the last word on the island. Um, if they would not let you leave to Venice, you can send somebody else. If that wouldn't work either, every few years a commission from Venice would come to check up on with people if everything is right or not. So there is some, even though that does not function all the time, there is a rather complex system that tries to guarantee that jurisdiction is accessible and ideally also takes place on the basis of the actual law. And do you have a favorite case? So many. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was one, like recently in a. Um, um, so one of my favorite cases is a is a is a villager that uh, takes his wife and his children and moves in with his lover, and everybody is perfectly fine with it. They don't care at all until some new priest in the village figures out, oh, this is not possible. He runs to the bishop and then they get expelled from the house. But the village community as such, more or less, they don't really care. Um, and there are so many things, or just like two sisters having a barbecue on the beach. Unfortunately, the animal was stolen. And it was midnight, it's long over, it's two in the morning. And then a rural guard literally smells the red, right? And he goes there and then he busts them. And then you have like guards chasing a couple of siblings that had been having a barbecue on the beach, you know? And then there are so many fun things that, that, that happen. Yeah, and that leads back, I mean, for talking about serious business and serious research, that leads back to, to this whole range of, of, of insights enabling really to get a grasp on, on life of rural societies in the 15th century. Thinking about how this impacts on today, I mean, you've just talked about two sisters having a barbecue on the beach, but the animal was stolen. I think we can all relate to that kind of incidence. And you've described the herders as socio-professional communities and today we have plenty of the socio-professional communities, almost anything from accountants to bakers, with formalised internal governance and contracts and relationships. What are the differences and even what are the similarities, if any, between this late medieval socio-professional community and today? Mm, the main difference surely is the non-existing degree of formal institutionalization. Other than, let's say, in, in Italy, where you would have the even statal organizations that would organize herding businesses, um, nothing like that happens in Dalmatia. 
So there it is an individual business, like people having contracts with people and that's it. But other than, for example, stonemasons or fishermen or other really formally institutionalized professional groups on the island, herders in the 15th century, they do not end up forming similar to a brotherhood or to a guild and those things. That, that does not happen. So when they are in conflict, they would build up on that they are herders just like so many others. And as herders, you would not be treated bad or this or that like those things so there is this clear belonging to a group but the group itself has no institutionalized side um, and insofar i guess it is different to today because it's it's not like a union or the the, the, the very bad owners or or those things so this yeah that does not happen any ideas why not why didn't they form more of a formalized guild that's a very interesting question, and I can only suppose why. And a very debatable but easiest idea to suppose is that if the legal system is working and protecting them, maybe there is no need. Um, but it could also be it's all speculation. I'm talking about Cortula, that is an island that back then... We generally do not encounter so many brotherhoods. If I'm not mistaken, in the 15th century, it has been two brotherhoods um, of the shipbuilders and caritative brotherhood, and that's it. You've talked a lot about the accounting day for the herdsmen, which was the St. Mary's Day on the 15th of August. And this was the time when all contracts were to be discussed and before the herds went back out into the fields, I presume. That was the main focal point of the herders' year. How did that mesh with the arable horticultural, viticultural industries on the island? Did they have the same focal point of the year? You, you see, in a way... If you take a look at the, the herding, the pastoral year, more or less, you can identify certain periods where this is rather clear. So we've been talking about accounting day that so August 15 would be also the formal starting date for new contracts, as it would be the end date for dissolving contracts. Um, then September 1st would be the next date in the calendar where herders would already, even though it's September just, uh, would already start working on the winter pastures, refurbishing them. Winter pastures are on communal territory as well, um, but that would be fenced areas. So really a place where herds would be stationary. And there is, let's say, there is a timely coherence to when the wine grapes are ready. So a uh, grape harvest would be around mid-September to Michael Mess at the end of September. And ideally, in that period of time, the herds would not be roaming freely. So ideally, the herds would be locked from early September onwards. Um, and that, in a way, is connected uh, to the winter cereals, right? Because if once you saw them, they need to develop and grow and, and that should happen without <laughs> without hungry sheep and goats um, and so they stay locked uh, because theoretically the climate would be mild enough you would not necessarily to have your sheep in-house in any sorts of ways so they would remain 
locked on a winter pasture unless they escape um, until early March or Easter. They would get back to roaming freely on, but only on the communal pastures throughout most of the year. Um, and then briefly afterwards, around mid-April, it is usually connected to St. George's Day, which is April 23rd, the period of sharing would start. And that would be the only sharing period. So it, it really seems like that these sheep and goats, you know, the goats were also shorn, have been shorn only once a year. Um, sharing takes until mid-May usually, and that is like the latest day. This we know from, from conflict litigation documents. Um, and then, then for two months, herders could take the animals from the communal pasture lands to the private lands of their contract partners, which would have various agricultural benefits for the private lands because you would, there would be manure helping the fertility of the soil of the owner, but the herders themselves, they would have the right to cultivate on that land for two months, a certain percentage of the land they can cultivate for their own needs. So then also the owner would have an additional agricultural worker because the herder needs to take less care of the animals. And, and so there is again somewhat of a mutual profit business going on that is not part of the contract necessarily, but that is also connected to, to seasonal rhythm then because um, also the first vegetables would be ready. So there is somewhat of a harvest cultivation thing going on. Before then in July, and and, and <laughs> this is also a resting period for the communal pastures. Having a few weeks without sheep and goats is also helpful for anything that grows there. And then in summer they would get back out on the pastures uh, for July and, and August, and then we are back at the counting day. So that is the seasonal rhythm and at least roughly how it is embedded. Yes, it's a very complicated, very complex business model and obviously a, a complex and very rich social um, and economic life for the people on the island. You've managed to uncover and share with us so wonderfully, uncovering it from your golden archives. Fabian, I can only say thank you for spending so much time talking to me, son and sharing your knowledge, your research and your interest with us. I hope that people find it as interesting as I have done. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Today, I have been talking to Fabien Kumala about his ongoing research into the business and life of herding communities on the island of Cordula in the 15th century. If you have enjoyed this, please do look out for other podcasts from Mieson. And if you would like to talk to other Mieson members about your own research, please do contact me through the Mieson website. I'm Kelm Calder, and this is the Mieson Podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.